said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. The event that ends the world. This is the title of our presentation tonight. But I can certainly tell you one thing. The world is not going to end with an alien invasion from extraterrestrials. It's not going to happen that way. I can certainly tell you for a certainty that the world is not going to finish in a cataclysmic nuclear exchange between America and rogue nations. It's not going to happen that way at all. In the year 2000, leading up to the year 2000, I remember there was all the scaremongering attributed to the Y2K bug. And then there were those fallacious prophecies of Nostradamus, that 16th century mystic. But none of those things turned out to be a reality because all they were were the devisings of men. They were inventions of men. But the prophecies that we studied last week, you remember, we looked at the prophecy of Babylon and then we looked at the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 and the outline of the rise and fall of nations. You will remember that we also did those, we examined the prophecies, those prophecies as they related to Jesus Christ. And the conclusion that we came to was that the Bible is inspired by God because nobody can look into the future. But the evidence that we saw last week was certainly God can and he most certainly does. These were amazing and wondrous prophecies that we looked at and it's no wonder that the sentiments of the Bible writers are enthusiastic in declaring the inspiration of the Bible. For example, we look at the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. He says, all scripture is given by what? What does it say there? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in what? The word righteousness there just means right doing. For Paul's exaltation, if you like, of the scripture is that the Bible is inspired from the beginning of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. There's not one part of the word of God that we can go to that we would say, well, this section's not inspired. From Genesis to Revelation all the way through, the Apostle Paul declares that the word of God is inspired. I want you to notice what the Apostle Peter says in relation to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, he says, for prophecy never came by what? It never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. In other words, it didn't come from the, from the inventions of men. It wasn't created by men. It was inspired by God. It is of divine origin. And God inspired those men to write words which we actually find in our Bible today. And in fact, what they were... They were God's 
words that he gave them or he inspired them to write. You know, one of the remarkable things that we acknowledged from last week was the uncanny ability that the Bible has of being able to accurately foretell the future. And as I said a little earlier, that's evidence of its divine origin. But there are many people who identify the Bible as tomorrow's newspaper because of this remarkable ability that we find in the Bible. And it's not just by chance. It's not just a lucky guess because we now know that the Bible writers were inspired by God and the Bible is his holy word. I hope you remember from our study last week as we looked at Daniel chapter 2 that we saw that the second coming of Jesus Christ would happen at the time of the divided kingdom of Europe. You remember where there was that stone that was cut out without human hands, which comes down and strikes the image, the the feet of iron and clay, those 10 kingdoms, which represented the divided kingdoms of Europe. So we know that the, the, the rock that destroys the earthly kingdoms is representative of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We saw the symbolism there was very strong. We recognize that at that time, Jesus Christ will come, but it will happen during the time of divided Europe. Now, as we compare, compare scripture with scripture, we saw very clearly that the rock represented there in Daniel 2 was referring to the second coming of Christ. And we asked the question, how do we know that this is going to be a reality. After all, this is talking about God intervening in this world by the second coming of Christ or with the second coming of Christ. How do we know it's going to be an an event? How do we know it's actually going to happen? Why should we look forward to it? Well, it's because of the preponderance of evidence that we have from past fulfilled prophecies. In fact, we only only looked at a, a few prophecies last week, but you will be amazed as you study in relation to uh, prophecies in relation to individuals, uh, prophecies in relation to nations, uh, prophecies in relation to cities, etc., that these prophecies, hundreds and hundreds of them, have all been fulfilled in the Old Testament and, and history testifies to the accuracy of Bible prophecy. So when it comes to our faith in the second coming of Christ, we know for sure that it's going to be a reality because of the evidence of past prophecy. Now, There are a lot of confusion today in relation to the second coming of Christ, just how Jesus will return, just how will it be manifested, what will be the manner of Jesus' return. And you see, all denominations, and you may not realize this, but all denominations believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back, but many of them put a unique spin on it. Many churches put a strange spin on it, which is actually quite alien from the Bible. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ came back in 1914. You don't read that in the Bible anywhere. The Baptists, Pentecostals and the like, they teach that Jesus Christ is coming back in secret and that nobody will see him and then a group of people will be saved and then Jesus will come back a third time and then those people will have a second chance when he comes back the third time. 
but try and find that in the Bible. You just can't. It's simply not there. And in fact, the Apostle Paul makes this statement regarding the day of Christ's return. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who loved his appearing. You see, the Apostle Paul talks about a day or that day, singular, and to all those that love his appearing. So the Apostle Paul uh, removes this whole idea of a second chance because Paul says there's a day when he will be saved and when those people who also love the second coming of Christ will also be saved as well. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 4 Jesus says this, take heed that no one deceives you. So how can we be protected? How can you be protected from deception? Well you remember I've said to you right from the beginning that the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. That I want you to test and prove everything that I share with you. Check my Bible references and the way that I actually explain them. Check the historical references and check everything that I share with you because the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. And that way, you can protect yourself from being deceived. You know, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, it's it's very interesting that there are over 1,500 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible. That's quite a lot. Would you agree? (laughs) That's a lot. And in fact, one in 25 verses in the New Testament actually uh, identifies the fact that Jesus is coming back. So one in 25 verses in the New Testament, 1,500 times in the Bible, the Bible testifies that Jesus Christ is coming back back to this world. So obviously this is one of the most important topics within scripture, within Holy Writ. And the Bible and God himself wants us to know that it's going to happen and it will be a reality. And this is the great promise that we find in the Bible in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, on the night of his arrest, He alluded very strongly to the fact that he was going to come back for his disciples. This is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Jesus said this. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, as I said, this is on the Thursday night of Jesus' arrest. He's there in the upper room with the disciples. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus says, I will come again. This is the promise of promises that Christians have clung to for two millennia, for 2,000 years, that Jesus will make good his word. This is the promise of promises that Jesus Christ not only went to heaven, but he's also going to come back for us as well. And the Bible identifies this promise as the blessed hope in the book of Titus. You see, all the New Testament writers believed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
every one of them. Throughout the New Testament, you find writer after writer teaching and preaching on the return of Jesus Christ. And in fact, just 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, there is something quite remarkable happens at his ascension. And the disciples have watched Jesus ascend to heaven. But in Acts chapter 1, we read these remarkable words. Now, when he'd spoken these things, and this is a reference to Jesus now, when he'd spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, as you compare scripture with scripture, these two men in white white apparel are actually angels. And we read this now. It says, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Here we read of two angels appearing at Jesus' ascension and they say to the disciples, this same Jesus you saw ascend to heaven will so come in like manner. In other words, the way that Jesus ascend to heaven is the way that he will return. It is something that the disciples saw with their own eyes. It is something that people will see. In other words, it will be a visible return. And as I've said earlier, all of the Bible writers agreed and preached and taught about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the most powerful words in Scripture are actually given by the Apostle Paul himself in a letter to the Thessalonians. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse, 4, uh, verse 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from where? What does it say there? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of who? God. And the dead in Christ will do what? The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes the second coming of Jesus Christ in terms that could never be construed as secretive. The Apostle Paul says that when Jesus Christ comes back, the righteous who are in the grave are rewarded at the time of the second coming with the resurrection of life. Paul says that the the righteous are resurrected. They're gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. Then Paul says, those who remain and are alive, that is the faithful who are alive at Christ's second coming, they too will be gathered up. Paul talks about the voice of the archangel. He speaks about the trumpet of God. Certainly, there's nothing secretive here in the words of the apostle Paul. Furthermore, Paul says that the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord where? in the air so jesus feet do not touch the ground at the second coming further to that you will notice that there's lots of activity here anything secretive about what you've read in the words of paul here no nothing whatsoever let's go to revelation chapter 1 verse 7 it says 
Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes will, of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. In this passage, John sets down his text and his message and his motto for the entire book of Revelation. That is his confidence in the literal, visible return of Jesus Christ and that every eye will see him. Again, nothing secretive here. The Apostle John says that the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's a revelation to us. It tells us very clearly that people on the earth, those who have turned their backs on God, those who have decided to edit God out of their lives, these people are going to mourn when they see Christ return. Again, highlighting the fact that there is nothing secretive here. And in fact, the, the, the wailing despair of the lost is sharply contrasted with the joy of the righteous at the return of Jesus. Christ. In Isaiah chapter 25 verse 9 we read this, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God and we have what? What does it say? We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice what? In his salvation. They rejoiced at Christ's return. They rejoiced at the event known as the second coming. The contrast is that the wicked, they will mourn. They will actually uh, lament the fact that Jesus Christ has returned. So what we see here is that there is nothing at all secretive about the second coming of Christ. The righteous rejoice at the second coming of Christ and the wicked lament the second coming of Christ. Did you realize that Jesus actually preached against the whole idea that his coming would be in secret? Did you know that? Yeah, indeed he did. We only have to turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at verse 23. This is where we're going to start from. But notice what Jesus says in relation to his coming. He says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, all there, do not believe it. Let's stop here for a moment. So somebody has to tell you, Look, there's Jesus Christ over there, or Jesus Christ is around the corner. What, is, what does Jesus say here? He says, don't believe it. Let's find out why. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. So there are going to be counterfeit Christs, counterfeit prophets that are going to mislead people in the last days. But it says <coughs> they show great signs and wonders. In other words, there will be miracles that will not be able to be explained by human logic or by science. It will defy rational thought. And therefore, people will believe that this is Christ. But... Jesus says, don't believe it because the false Christs and false prophets will arrive to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And then in verse 26, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert. What does it say? Jesus said, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. In other words, look, he's come in secret. We can't see him, but he's here now. What does Jesus say? Do not believe it. So the question we ask now, why, Lord, why would we believe that you have come then when people are uh, um, uh, testifying in the fashion that they are? Well, Jesus says this, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
You see, Jesus says, if anybody says to you that his coming is secret, don't believe it. And we say, why, Lord, why? He says, because just as lightning flashes across the sky, so also will my coming be. In other words, it will be something that is clearly seen, clearly observed by all those people who are here on, who will be here on earth at that time. Now, Jesus was here once and the world has never forgotten it. But Jesus clearly testified that he was coming back a second time. And uh, we already know that it's not going to be a secret. We already know that every eye will see Jesus Christ. We already know as we studied the, divide, the uh, chapter 2 in the book of Daniel that Jesus Christ comes at the time of divided Europe. These are things that we know for sure from the study that we've done thus far. However, let's keep reading because there are a lot of people who teach particularly within the Baptist fraternity of churches and particularly within the Pentecostal churches, that Jesus Christ comes before the tribulation. Let's find out if that's the case. What does the Bible say? Let's stick to the golden rule of allowing the Bible testify and present doctrines as they are. So we're going to go to Matthew 24 now. Matthew 24 and verse 29, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So let's pause for a moment. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, when the Bible talks about the tribulation, you have to understand that's referring to a series of supernatural events, which some of which are outlined in the book of of, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Some are outlined in the book of uh, Revelation, particularly chapter 8, 9, chapter 16, chapter 17, those areas there. But the Bible describes a series of supernatural events, which we identify as the time of tribulation. But Jesus says immediately after the tribulation. So everything that we're going to read now follows the tribulation. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Anything secretive here, would you say? Nothing whatsoever. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. Now, in the Bible, the Son of Man is the way that Jesus referred to himself. He identified himself with us as the Son of Man. He says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, we've already read that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. It says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In other words, everybody who is alive at the time of Christ's second coming will see Jesus return. And then it says, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven even to the other. Jesus here says that the end of the world will happen sometime after the tribulation. Now, as I said, the time of tribulation is a period of supernatural activity which happens in this world preceding the second coming. And the reason for it, to dramatically alert men and women that the end is near, that the end of world is, is coming. So God brings about supernatural signs and he gives freedom to Satan and demonic powers. And these are things that will never be able to be explained by human logic or science because it's meant to wake men and women up that the end of all things is at hand but following the tribulation 
following the signs and wonders in heaven, then the Bible says, or Jesus himself says here, that the end will come. In other words, Jesus will return now and gather his people into the kingdom. Now, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, that the righteous are gathered up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. But now what we read is that the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. But Jesus explains it a little further by saying that it's the angels that actually come and gather the righteous up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, some people believe that we have a spark of immortality within us. They teach this. In fact, many of the churches teach that we have a spark of immortality within us. But we're going to see shortly that immortality is only given to the righteous at the time of Christ's second coming. But because people believe they have this spark of immortality and that death is just a door into a new, another existence, they teach and preach that when a person dies, they either go to a heaven, they either immediately go to heaven or they go to hell and burn for eternity. Well, I want to let you know that those three aforementioned teachings are not found in the Bible anywhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have an immortal soul. Nowhere in the Bible does it say at death we go straight to heaven. And nowhere in the Bible does it teach that at death people go to hell. It's just not there. And in fact, again, we're going to be using the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, the Apostle Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, what? We shall all be changed. Now, the Bible uses the terms death, and sleep interchangeably it's synonymous so death and sleep interchangeably so paul says behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep in other words there are going to be people alive at the second coming of christ we shall not all sleep but we shall be all changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet now remember we read elsewhere about the trumpet blast while well, we're reading it again here you notice the way scripture dovetails one to another you don't have to do any mental gymnastics to make the bible fit because it's based on truth it says in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet and then it says that for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So at the time of Christ's return, the dead are resurrected and the righteous are changed. It says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, he says that when Jesus Christ comes, there is a change that happens upon God's people. It's a miraculous change because don't forget the Apostle Paul here is dealing with things that confound logic and defy human language. That's what he's doing. He talks about men and women of this age being prepared for to live among beings who have never sinned, to live in a world where there is no sin. In this world, we are mortal. We are subject to death. But at the time of Christ's return, we are made immortal, no longer subject to death. The Apostle Paul says that when Jesus Christ comes, we are corruptible. That is, we have bodies that break, break down. We lose our hair, our, our, our 
eyes start to fail on us. You know, we have sporting injuries and the like, and we grow old. Uh, but it's also referring to something else when it's talking about being corruptible, because we have fallen human natures. We are naturally drawn to, uh, to do those things which are wrong and to rebel against God. That's why Jesus said that we have to be born again. We need a new start and that happens when we accept Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ comes, we're made incorruptible. We are given new bodies that don't break down, immortal bodies. But the good news is that the Bible tells us that, that we will recognize each other in the life to come. And no longer will we have those natural drawings to, th to sin. That'll be a thing of the past after the time of Christ's second coming. See, we are being prepared at the second coming. We will be prepared to be able to stand among beings that have never sinned in a world where there is or in a universe where there is no sin. That's the promise. That's a reward for the righteous. But before we leave this, let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say on this very same subject when he was writing a letter to the Philippian church. And it's recorded in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. He says, we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change what? Our vile body that it may be fashioned into the likeness of his body. So who fashions us? Jesus Christ. And what sort of bodies do we have? We have bodies like Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming. Now let's find out why he comes because in Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 we read this. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his fathers with his angels. We know that the Son of Man is referring to Jesus. We already know that the angels accompany Jesus, that the angels are the one who gather the righteous up to meet the Lord in the air. And then he, that is Jesus, will reward each according to his works. So this passage is telling us here, the words of Jesus is very clear. There's nothing secretive about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says that there is no second chance here. Well, it doesn't actually say that directly, but it's certainly identifying the fact that there is no second chance because the scripture says that when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, he's going to give every man their reward for the good or for the bad. See, what we discover as we follow the scripture very closely, that there are two choices. People either respond to the Holy Spirit and are faithful to God. They, they, and if they're in a country where they've had the benefit of having a, the Bible freely available and they're in a Christian country, then it's also responding to the Holy Spirit, studying the Bible and having faith in Jesus Christ and living good, noble, upright and virtuous lives. Then the Bible says those people who have endeavored, whatever country they're from, whether they've had access to a Bible or not, but if they've responded to the Holy Spirit and they've endeavored to live good, moral, principled lives of integrity, the Bible tells us that those people will be saved. But what about those people who edit God out of their lives, who turn their backs on God? Well, for those people, it's very simple. The Bible says that they perish. They cease to exist. Am I making this up? I'm certainly not making this up. Let's go to John chapter 3, verse 16. We read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? What's that word there? Should not perish but have 
everlasting life. So whoever believes in Jesus Christ and lives out their belief in their life, the Bible says they have eternal life. But what about people who don't? Well, the Bible says that they perish. That just means cessation of life. You know, when they talk about perishable items, you know, those are items that can die. They can rot. They become nothing. No good for anything. Well, this is what happens to those who got out of their lives. The Bible says that they perish. They cease to exist. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is what? What does it say there? So what are wages? So wages is what we deserve. So what we deserve for a life of rebellion, what we deserve for a a sin-filled life when we've edited God out of our lives is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the contrast is clear. It's either death or it's life and it's simple as that. Now, the Bible does say that the wicked who are alive at Christ's second coming are destroyed. And we read about this in 2 Thessalonians. Let's go now. It says, Paul says this, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, what event is that referring to there when Jesus is revealed with his mighty angels? Well, that's second coming language, isn't it? That's right. And then it says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, there's nothing secretive about the second coming of Christ here. For the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air, whether they're dead in the graves or whether they're alive at Christ's second coming. But for the wicked, for those who have turned their backs on God, for these people who have said they don't want any part of God in their lives or they haven't chosen to follow God in their lives, the Bible actually says that they are punished with everlasting destruction. Now, this passage did not say everlasting punishment, did it? It didn't say everlasting punishing. The word there is destruction, and destruction just means uh, cessation of life. They are destroyed at Christ's second coming. But like Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, uh, he says there that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says the wages of sin is... Death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So it's either destruction, end of life, or eternal life. They are the simple choices that we find in the Bible. Now, when Jesus returns at his second coming, um, those who have chosen to follow him, to live a life, a principal life, in accordance to the light that they have, uh, the Bible says they receive eternal life. But those who've chosen to edit God out of their lives, the Bible says that they will be destroyed. But there's a dramatic vision of Jesus' return found in Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read it now. Revelation 19 and verse 11, it says this. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes War. Now, who is this a reference to? He who is faithful and true. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. And then it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
So the Bible describes Jesus in dramatic terms here. It says that the armies of heaven followed Jesus. You see, when Jesus comes for the righteous, heaven is emptied. The Bible tells us the host of heaven come and follow Jesus at the time of his crumbing. Notice what it says here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Again, it's reiterating the fact that all of heaven is going to be emptied at the time of Christ's second coming to witness the salvation, the redemption, if you know, the salvation of God's people. Then he who sits on the throne, uh, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And remember the response of the righteous at the time of Christ's second coming. Lo, this is our God and we have waited for him and he will do what? He will save us. In the book of Revelation, we not only have a dramatic demonstration or dramatic uh, vision of the return of Jesus Christ, that all, of hem- all the armies of heaven followed Jesus at his second coming. But we also see the response of the lost at the time of Christ's second coming. And this is in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 14 through to 17. And it says this, The heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled up. In other words, the atmosphere retreats at the time of Christ's second coming. And this world, because the sun doesn't give its light and the moon doesn't give its light, becomes a place that's unsuitable for human habitation. But it says, The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the mighty men hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains on the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne for the great day of his wrath is come and what does it say there that last part who shall be able to stand who shall be able to stand you see the response of the lost is to hide from the presence of God. Again, nothing secretive about the return of Jesus Christ whatsoever. You know, when we think about the promises of the second coming of Jesus Christ, they are replete through the entire New Testament and you find them in the Old Testament as well. Dramatic descriptions of the return of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to go to those now. However, the last warning that Jesus gave Uh, or one of the last warnings that Jesus gave before his crucifixion is found in Luke chapter uh, 31 or 21 regarding the attitude of those people who are preparing for the second coming of Christ. And Jesus says this, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Carousing is just drunken parties uh, or parting. And then it says drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come on you unexpectedly. See, Jesus said here that, you know, be careful about what you do, what your behavior is. Don't get sidetracked into a world of parting and profligate living. It's not going to do you any good. Notice what he says, for it will come as a snare on those who dwell on the face of the earth. You see, Jesus says here that when Jesus, he returns, it's going to come as a surprise to the majority of people. And then he says, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be 
counted worthy to escape all those things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus says that the, the, the time of his second coming is going to come as an overwhelming supply, surprise to the majority of people. And Jesus says, you need to be careful about your behavior. You need to be careful about what you do in your life so you don't get caught up in the things of this world and you miss the greatest event that was ever to come to planet Earth, second only to the, second, uh, the uh, first coming of Jesus Christ. The last promise that Jesus gave in the Bible is found in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. And Jesus says this, he which testifies to these things says, surely I come. What? What's the last word? Come quickly. The very last message that Jesus gave to the disciples here, to his followers, to the world in Revelation chapter 20 is uh, Revelation chapter 22. The last chapter of Revelation was that he is coming back. And isn't it true that if we want somebody to remember something, we'll often remind them if we're meeting with them, let's just say it's something small like feeding the pets. Please remember to feed the pets while I'm away on holidays. You know, you'll ask them if it's okay. And then you'll say it, probably the last thing you'll say to them, so please don't forget to feed the, the animals, whatever the case may be. Well, that's exactly what Jesus says here. Throughout the New Testament, the, the testimony is clear and sure that Jesus Christ is coming back and every eye will see him. And the very last message that Jesus gives is that he will be coming back. In other words, we can have a great deal of confidence in what the Bible teaches regarding the second coming of Christ, that it will be a reality. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned seven things about the second coming of Christ. First of all, it will be, it's a literal event that just as the New Testament describes it, that is how it's going to be. It will be personal. Jesus will come back in person for us. It will be visible. Every eye will see him. It will be audible. It'll be things that we hear. The graves opening up, the righteous ascending, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. It will be glorious. The Bible says at the time of Christ's resurrection, the one angel stood before the, before the tomb and the guards fell down like dead men. The Bible says that all of heaven is emptied. The Bible says all of heaven is emptied at the time of Christ's second coming and the glory that attends those angels and Jesus Christ himself is unimaginable. It talks about a climatic event of which it is and a decisive event it's decisive in terms that it will end the great controversy here on earth on this realm here where God's people have been persecuted where God's people have been alienated where Jesus Christ comes the one who offered salvation he comes and redeems his people from this earth you know the the teaching of the second coming of Christ reminds me of a very famous Irishman and uh, this Irishman's name was Sir Ernest Shackleton. I don't know if you've heard of him. Some of you might have heard of him. But Sir Ernest Shackleton was a famous explorer. In 1914, he led an ex exp expedition to cross the Antarctic from McMurdo Sound to the Weddell Sea. However, his ship got trapped in pack ice. And for something like nine months, it drifted and was driven by the winds and by the current. And then finally his ship, the Endurance, was actually crushed in pack ice. And then the men on board the ship, 
they made their way uh, to an island called Elephant Island and there they sought refuge, but supplies were running out. Then Ernest Shackleton, with a number of his men, they boarded a small boat. Actually, this is a photograph of the boat and they travelled 1,300 kilometres to South Georgia Island. It's part of the Falkland Islands. And there he raised a rescue team. They came back. But when Shackleton came back, eventually when he came back, he found that the route that he'd taken had been completely iced over. For another couple of months, he endeavoured to try and find a pass through the ice, and eventually he did. And when he came to the place in which he left his men, he found them waiting for him. This is a photograph of the event, the arrival of Shackleton after all that time. And when Shackleton came to the shore, he, he, he was surprised to find that all the men's belongings were already packed up and ready to go. And after the initial greeting, he asked him, he said, how is it that everything's packed up and ready? And he, and he was told by one of the men, he says, every day, one of us would say, come on, boys, let's get everything packed up because the boss may come today. You know, this reminds me very much about the, uh, about the second coming of Christ, that we should be preparing ourselves every day because no man knows the day nor the hour when Jesus Christ is going to return. Isn't that the case? It certainly is. And we can have full confidence in the Bible because it is certainly God's inspired word. I want you to raise your hand with me now if you understand that the second coming of Christ is going to be a literal event. God bless you all. God bless you. Let me ask you one other question. Do you believe that you need to shape your life in such a fashion as to be ready for when Jesus comes? Would you like to raise your arms? God bless you all. God bless you. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, our program next week is entitled, What is Important to God? What is Important to God? And it's going to be a very, very exciting meeting. Now, remember, for people who are watching this on the internet, live streaming, that sort of thing, you can order all the materials if you go to the Orchard website. You can request all the video material. You can request all the hard, all the hard copies along with the study guides as well. And we'll send them out to you wherever you live in the world. All you have to do is send it to the Orchard at the info at theorchardmelbourne.org.au or go to our website, theorchardmelbourne.org.au and we will send them out to you wherever you live in the world. Well, I want to thank you again for your concentration and your focus tonight. And why don't we just uh, close our eyes and bow our heads in prayer just as we finish up now. Father in heaven, we want to thank you and acknowledge you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the remarkable promise of the second coming. And Father, as we reflect on the reality of this event in the future, I pray that each one of us would be preparing ourselves as we cooperate with your plan and purpose in our lives to be ready on that great day. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au.
You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Hey. 
enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Soon after he posted his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Luther was summoned to appear in Rome to answer a charge of heresy. 
His friends were filled with dread. They knew the danger that threatened him in that city. People remembered John Huss a century before, how he had been promised a safe passage and fair treatment, but he had been burned at the stake. Elector Frederick of Saxony, one of the seven German princes, demanded that the trial be held within the boundaries of his territory. The Pope's legate was to hear the trial on his behalf. But before the trial could begin, the legate was charged to prosecute and constrain without delay and to banish, curse, and excommunicate all of whatever rank in church or state who would not seize Luther and his adherents. Here is displayed the true spirit of Luther's foes, not a trace of justice to be found. It was around this time that a dear friend of Luther would come to his aid and support, Philip Melanchthon. He was younger than Luther and was a learned scholar. His carefulness, gentleness, and exactness would serve as a complement to Luther's courage and energy. Augsburg had been set as the place of the trial, and whilst Luther was told not to attend by many of his friends who feared for his life, he was resolute about attending and made his way to Augsburg. At this point, Luther had not received an assurance of a safe passage, and his foes hoped that he would appear without one, but this he refused to do. The legate was at first very friendly in his exchanges with Luther, but he misjudged his determination and the strength of his convictions. Luther protested that he was being asked to retract without first being shown his error. Every response that he gave, he showed clearly how it could be backed up with the Bible. But the legate's response was always a heated response with the words, retract, retract. Realizing that this exchange was futile, Luther asked to present his findings in writing, which he did the next day. He gave it to the legate and he threw them aside straight away. Luther then met this proud man on his own grounds, the traditions and teachings of the church, showing how his assumptions were wrong. The trial wasn't really going anywhere though, and Luther soon retreated with his friends. They had tried to bully Luther by their threats, but this had not worked. Luther's teachings and writings were spreading across Germany like wildfire, and eventually Rome resorted to a bull of excommunication. Luther was condemned along with his adherents, and they were given 60 days to either recant or be excommunicated. Normally, this would strike fear into the heart of anyone, but not Luther. He gathered around him a group of doctors, students, and citizens of Wittenberg, and under a tree near this very spot, he publicly burned the Pope's bull of excommunication and the canon laws. Rome produced another bull of excommunication against him, declaring his final separation from Rome, saying he was accursed of heaven and condemning anyone who adhere to any of his doctrines. Truly it can be said of Luther, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
While the forms of opposition to the truth change and how open they are over time, the same antagonism exists and will be manifested to God's people until the end of time. If you are being persecuted for the stands that you are holding and for the convictions that you have, I want to encourage you that no matter who you are, no matter where you are or what the situation is, stand boldly for God, stand courageously for God, no matter what the cost may be. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.